0: to The Skeptic Wire. Okay, this is an interesting week there, folks. Gary, as you all know, uh, for the last several months, most of the past year, has been super busy with grad school and other work projects and stuff like that, and we already knew that he was not going to be able to make it this week, but Donna had a last-minute family emergency and she had to leave town, so she is not available either for the podcast recording, so... Don't worry, folks, it's not just going to be me talking at you for about an hour, or 15 minutes, or something like that. I put out a call on my Facebook page, and the call was taken up by uh, my friend uh, Jamie Carr, who has been on some other different shows as well, but uh, we met several years ago at Tam 8. And we're just going to talk about some stuff in the news, maybe some stuff about her, and see where this goes. So, you
1: forgot the ultimate juggling partner part of that story, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I buried the lead. Um, at, at Tam eight in during the, the the workshop day, there was a workshop for learn how to juggle with was it Michael Goudot?
1: Yes, Michael Goudot.
0: friend of uh, Pendulette, and... who
1: taught Pendulette how to juggle.
0: Yes. Yeah. So uh, it was a, cl- a room of maybe a hundred different skeptics all learning how to juggle. Some people already knew and were having fun with their pins and stuff like that. But there were those of us who did not know shit about juggling.
1: Yes. But we learned a lot about how to take pictures of amazing juggling. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right. We have some pictures of us doing some kick-ass juggling moves. If I may say so myself, it looks like we're doing like amazing stuff.
0: Looks like we we
1: threw the balls in the air and (laughs) took a picture.
0: (laughs) It worked. It worked. Well, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find some of those and, and put them on the show notes on the blog for this yeah. show.
1: But I, uh, I do recall us having like uh, six balls apiece and just throwing them all in the air yep. and taking a picture. And it looks like we're doing something like circus worthy. So, <laughs> <sighs> but, So yeah.
0: Jamie, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you've been on some other shows. You can talk about that, but maybe more about your your biography, that sort of thing.
1: Well, I am a classically trained scientist. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M with a major in biology and a minor in chemistry. So um, then I worked in medical microbiology and immunology as an intern for a while before moving into pathology. I've had so many careers. It's not even funny. Uh, Everything from pastry chef to like bouncer at at a nightclub. But you and, bounce them
0: with science.
1: Of course, of course. Physics, it's all about physics because <laughs> you, can't, you can't be 5'2 and be a bouncer without, you know, knowing some in physics. And then after years in pathology, and I was in veterinary pathology, which was really cool. I got to pretty much dissect animals for a living, find out um, how they got sick and why they died. Um, which was really exciting, but I tend to get bored easily.
0: So sounds like it might um, also have a bit of a burnout yeah. factor of seeing dead yeah. animals all the time.
1: Well, it's it's fun like the first time you see a dead giraffe, and <laughs> then after you've dissected eight dead giraffes, or you've been told to do like microtoming, which is cutting like one mill- millimeter slices of a giraffe's neck, which is like nine feet long. <laughs> Yeah. It, there's definitely a burnout factor. And for me, I really need a challenging job. So I went, Hey, why don't I become a teacher? It's is like the biggest mistake ever, but I wanted a challenge and I definitely got it. So I've been in education for five years. Um, mm-hmm. I was the science department head in a town called Grand Prairie, a suburb of Dallas. And I oh. ma- recently made the move to another suburb of Dallas called Capel, which is, um, a very wealthy school district. So I am also the mother of one and a half, a <laughs> gestating num- skeptic number two, our version 2.0. <laughs> and so, just as kind of a mom, an educator, and a scientist, I've I've come across a lot of weird craziness that I'd love to share.
0: Cool. Now, those of you who she might sound familiar if you listen to some other shows.
1: Oh yeah. I was the education I was the educational consultant on Dogma Free America. Um I've also been on as a guest on the Parenting Beyond Reason podcast. And I had a podcast of my own for a while, although nobody knows it because we had like two listeners. Um <laughs> But it was Sucker Punch, the show from Under Fiend Radio.
0: So. And that was more was just kind fun. of friends bullshitting and having fun. Kind
1: yeah, of basically, we were in a basement. And we had some microphones kind of listening to punk music and then just getting, eh, I don't know, shit faced and, and yelling <laughs> at each other. The term, the, the show title Sucker Punch was literal, not figurative. So. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, listeners may not realize, but uh, Jamie actually has never listened to our show, so she's kind <gasps> of oh, coming I, in blind here. And I feel here. so
1: bad. No, no I, I do. I asked
0: you yesterday to do this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm and I'm always looking for new podcasts because my my car talk podcast has become a repeat now that the car talk guys are gone, and uh, there's I have to wait a week between wait wait don't tell me so. <laughs> Um, I I don't know what else to listen to, so I'm glad to have another thing to add to my
0: Yeah, I've gotten into Boston. like the comedy discussion podcasts slash improv things like the nerdist or improv for humans or uh comedy bang bang, that sort of stuff mm-hmm. where
1: I think I have a limit yeah. to how many listeners a show can have before I just think, I'm not valuable enough to this podcast to be listening to it. Um, so you're kind I, of a so,
0: podcast hipster.
1: I am. I'm totally a podcast hipster. Man, if you've got more than 10 listeners, I'm not, I'm not going to subscribe to you because you don't need me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, we, so. we notice every time we get a like or unlike on our Facebook page. And right now we're about 409 So, uh, we do notice when we get bumps and listeners, that sort of thing.
1: Okay. So, so I'll listen to you, but only until you're popular and then I'm dumping you. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Once you pass like the 300 podcast mark (laughs) with one exception, and that's, that, that's a podcast called answer me this, which is one of my favorites. Okay,
0: cool. Okay.
1: So what are we going to talk about?
0: Well, one of the first segments that we do on our show that our listeners will know about is a sciencey skeptical birthday.
1: Mine, no. No,
0: it's not my it, it, it. It isn't your birthday, is it? <laughs> no, it's no, not. Okay. okay. <laughs> my right. daughter
1: thinks every day's my birthday, but that's awesome. <laughs> She's two. She doesn't know what it means except for that she gets cake. So she tells me every day, "It's your birthday." Yep. Like that's great. Cake? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My eldest nephew is just about to turn two, and uh, my brother and sister-in-law told me that he doesn't quite get what's going to go on. He doesn't get the concept yet, but once it's happened next year and when his little brother turns one, he's really going to know it's about cake. It's about presents. It's about attention paid to him. What they don't
1: get is that that doesn't continue after the day of their birthday. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As the parent of a two-year-old who just celebrated Easter with the whole Easter basket thing, Mm -hmm. she was very upset when she wanted to set out her Easter basket the next day because (laughs) she thought it was going to be full of toys and bubbles and stuff. I had to explain to her that, no, that's that's one day. (laughs) (laughs) Once a year. She's like, I got the basket. You know, give me some candy, bitch. <laughs>
0: well, that's not how it works, sweetie. Well, that's kids for you. Yeah. Well, it's not any of those birthdays uh, yet. We're going on this birthday. It's back to someone who was born May first, eighteen fifty-two. Here's kind of how we do the birthday thing. Tesla. No. Yes. Okay. Good. You're 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 working on guessing here. <laughs> uh, this guy was born in Spain is a scientist, so it 's not Tesla, but it 's sciency okay uh, did a lot of medical drawings and pathology and researched a lot into cell structures, especially in the nervous system. He has a really hard to say name as far as i 'm concerned.
1: Oh goodness, that doesn 't help me at all
0: that 's okay. He did get a <clears throat> Nobel Prize in nineteen o six for all his contributions to neuroscience. And some people have actually kind of called him like the father of neuroscience. Well,
1: I have no idea because neuroscience is so far from my
0: area of
1: expertise. I'm going to have to – I'm going to have to – I talk with a lot of
0: confidence when I do this birthday thing, but half of these people, I just learned about myself that day. Half the thing for this birthday gig is to just learn more myself. And I know if – at last minute for some bizarre reason i had gotten a little bit more prominent skeptic from another really 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 famous podcast if i had ge- if i had told him father of neuroscience spanish he probably would have guessed it i don't fault you at all for not guessing <laughs>
1: i'm like i i don't even have a big something to guess on <laughs> Because you were, like, self-structure, and I'm like, Hook? I I have no idea.
0: No. His name is Santiago Ramon y Cajal, or Cajal.
1: Okay, well, that makes me feel a little better, because I've never heard that name before in my life. Okay.
0: So... Like I said, he uh, grew up in Spain. He did a lot of professorship in Madrid and Valencia, I think it was. And basically... Contributed a lot to theories of neuroscience, of the connections of the different cells and drawing the cells themselves, which helped kind of figure out a little bit more about the theories of the brain and how it works. Because I I would assume that by the late 1800s, early 1900s, they really kind of understood it's not like the liver or the heart that's the center of your your thoughts and your your personality. It all comes from the brain.
1: That there is a physiological response with your heart when emotions involved, that you actually do, your heart beats faster or you have right. heartache. And but it's it was not like you get that, a
0: spike through the heart, you forget how to speak English.
1: Well, true, true, <laughs> right? Um, but I can certainly understand the, especially when all you had to, to learn about how organs worked was from what few vivisections or surgeries you were able to perform on live people, and then autopsies of dead bodies. And you knew exactly. that if you got hit in the heart, you died. If you got hit <laughs> in the head, you died. And so they knew these two things were important, but not exactly what they did. So I can't fault earliest scientists for thinking that the heart <laughs> was more important than it was. But so. I'm, I'm
0: going to assume that this gentleman, uh, Kajal, did a lot of this similar things that you had mentioned of taking micro slices of different parts of the brain and saying, okay, there's this kind of cell that has this connect, this different type of connection that I haven't seen before. So I'm going to draw it. And most of it was just kind of figuring out the structure of the nervous system, not necessarily how it all worked. Apparently there's some stuff about he identified dendrites, but didn't quite understand Mm -hmm. how they were involved. So it was a lot of the progress of science. But he got a Nobel Prize for it. Yeah. And we
1: need, we need somebody to get a Nobel Prize for debunking the 10% of your brain thing. <laughs> because I tell you what, I, I, somebody sent me a link to this trailer for this movie, Lucy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, freaking, that looks amazing. And then they pulled out the 10% nonsense. Yep. And I'm going, look there 's two things that lead to this ten percent of your brain thing, and this is about all the neuroscience I know, so i 'm just going to lay it out there go for it which is you use ten percent of your brain at a time mm-hmm. right, and you 're using all of your brain, but for active thought, only ten percent of your brain of roughly ten percent of your brain are neurons, and the rest are glial cells, and so it's not as though those glial cells are capable of something that they're not doing. It's just that they're not doing the thinking bits. they like um, their myelin
0: kind of support cells and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: And so it just bugs the crap out of me when all <laughs> of these popular movies take what could be a really cool idea and then screw it up by just using such horrible science. Even in this one, you know, you're dealing with a neurologist. Can't you friggin' get some scientist to tell you, no, this isn't how it works. Plus there's this entirely untapped junk DNA idea that honestly, it would make more sense from a scientific perspective. What if somebody activated and turned on all these genes that are inactivated in our
0: bodies right, right. and that's, looks that's more a bit the, more convincing sci-fi plot
1: yeah the epigenetics of like all of the potential of millions of year old dead viruses dna that we're carrying around and it just bugs me that that's kind of an untapped potential and mm. instead they're using this trite and horrifically inaccurate 10 percent of your brain
0: bullshit it's lazy so, writers yeah. need just a way to get into whatever story. Maybe it's a good like you said, it's, maybe it's a good interesting concept they're trying to sell but mm-hmm. the idea of this 10% of the brain thing, they heard it somewhere they assume it's true and they just plug it in there to get onto to the next thing
1: Yeah, but it kind of ruined a trailer for what otherwise looked like a really cool movie <laughs> Honestly, if they had just changed it to activating junk DNA, I'd be like, I'm all for it. That's really a cool idea Cool Actually, there was an article that you had sent me about uh, epigenetics. Yes, and so that was actually a very fascinating. Like, how can the diet or can the diet of a pregnant woman affect the genetics of her baby by doing exactly what we were talking about—just turning on or turning off various genetic markers? Um,
0: exactly. What what the what the study was. Um, I'm not sure where it's published. Uh, oh, Nature Communications, I think it is. Basically, a team went out to Gambia when, in Africa. Mm-hmm. And in those areas where you, it's, it's a more rural setting where people are just kind of hunting and gathering, kind of, there can be big swings depending on the season on what people are eating. Mainly, it's kind of the dry season versus the rainy season. And they took about 190 or so women, 84 of which had conceived during the rainy season and then about the same number who had conceived during the dry season. And they they basically kept track of their nutrient levels by taking blood samples periodically. And then they analyzed the DNA of their babies after they were born. I assume it's very nice, gentle, either cheek swab or skin sample or something like that. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're not grinding up African babies if you're worried <laughs> about that.
1: <laughs> well, one of the things that, of course, stood out to me as, as like the headline of the article is Diet Permanently Alters Babies' DNA. And I'm going, oh God, are you yeah. just freaking kidding me? And then I actually <laughs> read it and read a follow up article about the, um, the the epigenetics of it, and exactly. that that it it takes a look at a much larger picture. But with so many of these kind of, and this is a, highlights a point for me at least, which is that these science news headlines can sometimes be so misleading that yeah. with an uninformed scientific public, then I have students that come to me and are like, oh well, what you eat changes your DNA. And I'm like, uh. No.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) No, not exactly. Well,
0: at least in the um... main article we were looking at, it said influences DNA. Mm -hmm. And really what it is, is it's expressions of different DNAs. I think how they talk about it is that different genes that are expressed or suppressed get methyl groups attached to them. Mm -hmm. And that somehow the different levels of diet, either they're lacking in some protein or amino acid or something, which maybe suppresses certain gene expressions Mm -hmm. or maybe allows something to be expressed. And that methyl group attachment they found was different amongst the babies born in the two different seasons. Mm -hmm. They had shown this kind of thing with animal tests before where they saw... If you gave two groups of mice different diets,
1: mm-hmm. they
0: kind of grouped into different hair coloring, or something like hmm. that. So it's yeah. It's, it, the big thing about this article was the first time they'd seen it in humans.
1: Yes, very. But it, um, it
0: seems that epigenetics is the kind of the next best, the next greatest thing that we're going to find out how influential, how complex our DNA really is. I know. Oh, there's yeah. been some research into how it may be epigenetics that may or may not. There's no conclusions yet. Influence sexuality. And I think how, that would
1: be fascinating yeah.
0: to, to. How it is hear more from about. birth, but it's not a gay gene, but it's expressions of different genes based on <laughs> whatever happened in the womb or early childhood.
1: Perhaps environmental factors. Perhaps exactly.
0: the presence of some
1: of something in some people's diet or or not. Um and I think that's a very very fascinating and then bear with me a little bit because it seems like <laughs> I'm making a huge jump here. Um but this actually reminded me of um another skeptical fun fact. I I love talking about horoscopes. Um particularly with my students and my husband actually talked to me once about um a history study that he had read about how horoscopes may have actually been A lot more accurate as far as like the basic personality types back in Roman times when you had some babies that were born at certain times of the year Mm -hmm. that had more food, more resources, more supplies. And those babies would grow up to be strong, healthy, and muscular, and they would tend to be like your Leos. Um, hmm. And so it, the the season in which you were born could have had a very large effect on the way that you, of your demeanor or your personality because right. of the way that you were raised. You might have been raised in a good season or a good year and – that could make a difference in the way that you are both treated by your family, as well as being raised among plenty versus being raised and having to survive through the winter with very little food or or fewer resources. So I thought it was very fascinating that even though horoscopes are, especially like newspaper horoscopes are a bunch (laughs) of malarkey, that this whole, these you know, babies born at this time of year may have a tendency to be this way, actually, could have had some kernel of truth to it at some point.
0: Right, because um, nowadays we can get apples anytime year round yes. in our grocery culture. Yeah. So, when this article on pre pregnancy and during pregnancy diet talks about our best advice is to have a well balanced diet w- during pregnancy and even at the point mm-hmm. of conception. Because even, even at the point of conception, you may have certain vitamins floating around that influence that, okay, this baby's going to grow up this way. So yeah. even at the beginning, it's going to cook. So don't smoke even when you're trying to conceive, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my goodness, the whole pregnancy (laughs) diet thing, you're opening up a can of worms and I'm sure somewhere there is a pregnancy diet that says you should open up a can of worms and (laughs) eat them because they're good for you and they'll make your labor easier and you'll pop out an Einstein baby.
0: As you mentioned, you are, you said four four months pregnant?
1: Four and a half months
0: pregnant. So uh, even though this is your second child, I am sure you have gotten... Lots of unsolicited advice.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, one of them is tuna fish. And I I like tuna fish. And I'll eat... And it's not like I'm eating, you know, eight cans of tuna a day, but (laughs) almost every website is like tuna has mercury in it. And I asked my doctor, who's a 67-year-old OB. Mm -hmm. um, He's trying to retire, but I won't let him because he has to deliver my baby first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Literally, he had to get permission from his wife to be able to deliver my baby because he's trying to retire. Um, And I said, you know what? I don't. And I really try very hard not to go about approaching things like this with this argument from antiquity of women have been having babies for hundreds (laughs) of thousands of years. And, you know, there are other women in the world that eat tuna and they haven't had problems because I understand our technology has come a long way and we know a lot more than we used to. Mm -hmm. But along with that advancement of knowing more than we used to, I think we worry a lot more uh, than we used to because it's like every little thing. And the horrible thing about being pregnant, and I I might get a lot of flack for saying this, is that your body is just this hormonal mess. And all you want to do is cry. Everything is out of whack. (laughs) Yeah. Like I cry at Geico commercials. (laughs) right and and everything is, is is hypersensitive and so um when you have a doctor um, like my former ob um I had a nurse that was like if you don't do this you are going to have a miscarriage and you're killing your baby and she was terrifying to me and I would just go home and just cry and I'd be like oh my god I missed my prenatal vitamin for a day I'm going to you know have a miscarriage and my baby's going to die and i had a i had a horrible experience with a prenatal nurse who used that you know fact that i'm so terrified about my pregnancy to make me do things but then pregnant women of course just like everybody else goes on the internet right so here i am pregnant woman go on the internet and it's like you can't eat bacon and i'm like fuck you i want to eat bacon really? try to keep me away from bacon huh. um and yeah, apparently it's the levels of sodium can do so much damage to brain function or something. And um, so much of this really doesn't have any science behind it. Um, and it it is like, we heard that mercury is bad, and therefore these are the foods that have trace amounts of mercury in them. Don't eat any of them. And, you know, a huge list. There's an actual website that's called WhatCanIEat.com. <laughs> That's all about what what you can and cannot eat during your pregnancy, and you can send in submissions and say, "Is this safe to eat?" and then they will analyze it and get back to you and <laughs> post like what you can and cannot eat. And sounds like a magic eight ball. It it is. It's ridiculous, and I've become very upset with the internet. <laughs> I spend I spend literally hours and hours a day um, after my daughter goes to sleep while my husband is trying to come to sleep. And I'm like, sorry, there's somebody wrong on the internet. I have to <laughs> fix this. You know, it's the anti-vaxxers and the people yeah. telling me not to eat bacon and Alicia Silverstone and oh, yeah. Ginny McCarthy, And <sighs> it's one thing after another of either celebrities influencing people to make bad decisions or uninformed life science contributors that write on blogs without actually having the information
0: to, to do so. Yeah. You've got, oh. uh, you, you mentioned Alicia Silverstone mm-hmm. and, um, she's got a, oh my goodness. First of all, she's, she's, got, a book out. she's got a new book coming out. First of all, The title, You Need to Take Three Breaths Just to Finish the Damn Thing. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, do you have it written down? Because I can't ever, you know, there's no way I could
0: remember the whole thing. Here it goes. The Kind Mama, A Simple Guide to Supercharged Fertility, comma, A Radiant Pregnancy, comma, A Sweeter Birth, comma, and A Healthier, More Beautiful Beginning. At least she uses the Oxford comma. At least she's that intelligent. Mm -hmm. Uh, But apparently the book has... Lots of claims saying things like meat and dairy during your pregnancy will turn your uterus into a marinated pit of toxic sludge. And the toxic sludge is in scare quotes.
1: See, look, she's trying to take my bacon away. That's what it is. <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> like- um, let's see. shes I don't have a lot of details, but she's apparently very angry at the diaper industry because it's backed by corporate-backed pseudoscience and it's not even a disposable diaper versus cloth diaper thing she's the the quote she... is babies are quote much more content leaving their business in the grass so okay. that's more like letting yeah. your kid shit in everywhere they want
1: <laughs> yeah it is and and she also thinks that tampons are
0: toxic. They uh, can be, but not if you yeah, well, use them as directed. <laughs>
1: anything can be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> water can be. I've, yeah, apparently bacon is turning my my uterus into a toxic sludge pit. Uh, but this is the type of language, and these are the type of articles that are getting so much press. And what, what ap- astounds me about this is... That she's been able to write this book. Yeah. And who is she, right? Because she was, you know, in a cult film in 1995, <laughs> you know, because she starred in Clueless. Yeah.
0: Well, you you mentioned a couple minutes ago how when you're pregnant, and you're telling me anecdotally from your point of view, mm-hmm. you're full of hormones and emotions, all that. But I would guess that a lot of women are that way. Not everybody, but a lot.
1: Yeah. So.
0: In some ways, being the devil's advocate, you can understand why someone in that state who's worried, sick about their the, the health of their kid is really satisfied by the absolute certainty of someone like Jenny McCarthy or Alicia Silverstone or what's her name from uh, Big Bang Theory, Mayim uh, Bialik. Yeah, Bialik. Yeah, Bialik. I always forget how to pronounce her name, yeah. even though I had a big crush <laughs> on her in the 80s. Um, yeah,
1: myembialic. They've, they've got
0: such certainty of their beliefs, and and they say it like they're an authority, and then you get measles coming back to the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, with myembialic, one of the major problems that I have with her is not at all the extended breastfeeding thing. I actually breastfed my toddler after she was two even. And and I know that she's gotten a lot of flack for her, her defense of extended breastfeeding. And I'm like, you know what, if it feels right to you and it's not hurting anyone and you are doing good for your kid by all means. But when you espouse something like, anti-vaccination
0: yeah she's you very are a, anti-vax
1: and you are espousing something that is doing damage and with her case she is a scientist yeah and not only is she a celebrity because you know oh my god she played blossom but <laughs> or she's on the big bang theory which is a show about smart people therefore she must be smart but she actually has a degree in neuroscience so people look up to her not as a celebrity, but they also point fingers to say she believes in anti-vax and she's a scientist. So therefore, she has even more credibility than someone like Jenny McCarthy or Alicia Silverstone.
0: She kind of falls um, into the camp of someone like Dr. Oz, someone yes. who should know better but is still spouting either like through mymbolic, Bialik, it's more like she has this sincere possibly uninformed, unresearched bias where Dr. Oz, you think maybe it's a little bit more commercial sliminess, but either Mm -hmm. way they're spouting something without really kind of following, following the evidence where it leads. They're Mm -hmm. just spouting a, um, a philosophy and trying to make everything fit that.
1: But I do think it makes people like Dr. Oz and, and Mayim Bialik, The most dangerous type of celebrity. I agree. Because it's easy for us as skeptics to attack people like Jenny McCarthy or Alicia Silverstone with ad hominem attacks. Of (laughs) I watched Jenny McCarthy eat her own boogers on MTV, right? Right, like you can't listen to
0: her. She was in Playboy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like like so it's it's very easy for people to dismiss her. It is a lot harder to get people to dismiss people like Dr. Oz. Yeah. And to be able to say, yes, he's a medical doctor, but idiots graduate from med school every day. It's you know? the uh,
0: George Carlin joke. Tomorrow somebody has an appointment with the country's worst doctor. Yep. <laughs> there are below and- average doctors out there.
1: Well, and ironically enough, I I got into, you know, a someone is wrong on the internet argument (laughs) on this article about Alicia Silverstone, actually, in the comments section that most of which got deleted because I really hit this lady pretty hard about damaging the herd immunity and, and injuring people because her only argument, and she repeated it eight times in the comments, was, if you're vaccinating your kids, what do you care what I do with my kids? And I said, well, I care... Because of and, and she couldn't understand herd immunity, so I went right. back to my immunology background and said, "Let me explain this to you in a way that hopefully everyone can understand. When you are unvaccinated, you are providing a a host within which this virus can replicate, and as this virus replicates in an unvaccinated host, it will mutate as viruses do." And it will mutate into something to which we have no vaccine. And so you are then creating strains of a virus that can then infect even vaccinated populations because you're providing it with a host in which to to reproduce.
0: Giving it a safe space.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so I tried to explain. This is what we mean by herd immunity is you are preventing this virus or bacteria even from having somewhere that it can reproduce and continue to mutate. And so by doing so, we can minimize the numbers of strains that we're dealing with. And her response was, well, that hasn't happened because chickenpox is still chickenpox and measles is still measles. To which my reply is, no, there are actually nine strains of varicella, or no, 21 strains of varicella, um, which is chickenpox, and nine different strains of the measles. So, yes, it does happen, and it's happening in the United States right now, particularly with the measles outbreaks that we're seeing. We're seeing new strains, and the more new strains we see, the more damage we're doing to our vaccinated population, and Mm. that's... In my opinion, you know, I know this is kind of hyperbole, but that's like holding a loaded gun to my child's head. And that's unacceptable.
0: If our co-host Donna was here, she would let you know that we've mentioned this on the show many times. Her daughter, I think it's her daughter, has an egg allergy, so can't get a lot of vaccinations. Mm
1: -hmm. It's either
0: an egg allergy or an allergy to something else that means she... Medically should not get the vaccinations.
1: And it could be sheep albumin. It could be. Could, um, it, it's, it's something there's... like
0: that where she has reactions. So another thing to say a parent like that is you are vaccinating not only just to protect your child, which should be important to you, but also everybody else's child and everybody else's grandparents who yep. are also very susceptible to any sort of thing or your uncle Joey out in San Francisco who's fighting AIDS. Or something yep. like that. You are helping everybody else. It's not just about you. It's not just about your kid. And, and- that's
1: why I, I personally believe, and this is a personal belief, but I will use my freedom of speech to extol it until the ends of the earth. It should be required by law to get vaccinated and it should not be I would go so far as to say that n- no religious exemptions, no personal exemptions, health only, yeah, right? Met, like a doctor's there are people... medical
0: exemption for something like an allergy. Well,
1: and then you end up with quack doctors who are writing, you know, medical exemptions like people writing prescriptions for medicinal marijuana yeah. to anybody who wants it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, anybody who will cross their palm with some green,
0: something and that so, goes up against a review board or something like that.
1: Yeah, there there should certainly be. Guidelines for not just being able to opt out of something that is in the best interest of public health safety, yeah. but I this actually happened in um, here in the Dallas area. I'm a bit of a a crunchy mom. As far as I like, I love cloth diapers, mm-hmm. and I cloth diaper not because it's like good for the environment and I'm not putting chemicals in the landfill, um, which are not necessarily
0: bad arguments. But you have yes. a different argument.
1: But for me, it was cheap. And so I'm like, (laughs) I'm all about cheap. And I like the fact that I'm not ever going to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I've got to go buy diapers because I don't have any. You might wake up in the middle
0: of the night and realize, oh, shit, I didn't do laundry. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That has happened. But at at that point, you can tie a T-shirt on them, which I have done. Um, So it's a. if you cloth diaper, it doesn't seem as gross. <laughs> but at the same time, um, this put me in the in the company of some people with some really wackadoo ideas, and we're talking the you know the people who think that the placenta should be left attached to the baby until it rots off, and you know is is oh god, <sighs> I, I can't even think about it.
0: it it's um, a little icky, especially because <laughs> I haven't had dinner yet. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> But the people that are the amber teething necklaces group of, let's put this strangulation threat on your baby and put them to sleep.
0: Free range kids kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And, And so I've... I've come into contact with a lot of these people just through the cloth diapering community. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take my daughter to this big Guinness Book of World Records breaking event called the Great Cloth Diaper Exchange, where it was, you know, thousands of mothers coming together to all change their baby's diapers. Until I started doing a bit of, you know, reconnaissance on the group and found out that more than half of these mothers, a much higher percentage than I thought, were anti-vax. And I'm like, I'm not taking my daughter anywhere near an event like this, because not only is it one or two people who aren't vaccinating, but it's the vast majority of them. It's a perfect example of the lack
0: of herd immunity.
1: Yeah, And so I was absolutely terrified and and did not take her to the event, but it prompted me to begin a play group here in Dallas called Tots with Shots awesome, um, because I wanted my child to be around other vaccinated kids and also to provide a safe space for people who like your friends don't have or don't have the ability to have their child vaccinated can have a safe space. And I got thrown out of my cloth diaper group, um, for being pro vaccine and vocal about it. I got thrown out of a group called the crunchy atheist moms. They told me that I was being discriminatory and judgmental, and that they were going to call for a boycott on my playgroup. To which my reply was, if you're the kind of person that would boycott my playgroup, you wouldn't be invited anyway. <laughs> so um,
0: it's, it's it was... <laughs> an amazing example of the unfortunate fact that not all atheists are skeptics, and not oh. all skeptics are atheists, but you know, the, there's the vast overlapping, mm-hmm. but the Atheists that aren't skeptics and the skeptics that aren't atheists are really kind of confusing sometimes. Oh yes. A- and and can be pretty wackadoodle.
1: It was very shocking to me and I I had a run in, I guess, with this lack of skepticism when I I was I was going through my first pregnancy and I started talking to a friend of mine at one of our atheist events and I started talking about how crazy these people who do like water birth are. And I'm like, who wants to give birth in like fecally contaminated water? Like (laughs) that is the grossest thing I've ever heard. And
0: now are you saying it's fecally contaminated? I've heard sometimes when women give birth, they also go to the bathroom. Is that why?
1: Generally? Yes. Okay, And that's, yeah, like that idea of that along with I'm going to sit in this tub and have a baby and have like all sorts of fluids floating up out of the water or what, that I'm sitting in. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to sit in that. I don't want my baby sitting in that, you know, right. or my baby's first breath to be in this water that all this ugh is in, you know. Is
0: is the reason they give the that some people <laughs> think we're, what is it, the, the water ape? It, or something they, like say, that.
1: they say it eases the transition is the term most common, like the phrase most commonly used. And so I kind of went off about this and f- with my with my group of friends, one of which was, was as pregnant as I was. We were both about six months pregnant at the time. I was like, you know, this is ridiculous. There's no primate that gives birth in water. And so even if you're going the
0: like all natural route. Yeah, I hate to no- use the naturalistic kind of explanation but sometimes it makes sense
1: it's like there's no there's nothing natural about a primate giving birth underwater like the babies are you know adapted to breathe air when they come out and i don't want my baby trying to breathe and have you know water yeah so my friend got one of my friends the pregnant one got a little huffy and walked away and i'm like well did did i say something wrong or and then my other friend leaned across the table and says you realize that she was you know, she's going to have a water birth. Right. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh shit. I'm like, really? Like an atheist would do like, (laughs) it just blew my mind. Cause, and of course I just spent like 30 minutes railing about how stupid it was. And I felt really horrible, but then I felt the need to like, go to her later and say, you're not really like really going to do this. Right. And I don't know. There are several decisions that I've known various atheist mothers to make that that just don't make sense to me. But I think also if you're not putting your baby at risk, there are certain things that I'm like, if you choose not to breastfeed, I'm not going to – I'm not the kind of mother that wants to push something on everyone.
0: Right. There's plenty of benefits to something like breastfeeding or co-sleeping or bassinet sleeping or something like that. But to not do that for – I mean, some people can't because yeah. they have maybe issues or infections or something, so they have to bottle feed so but other parents will look down at them and saying, You're being a horrible mother, not yeah. knowing that background or well and
1: even even something like, like that
0: even something like the elimination
1: communication, which is the no diaper policy where you don't put your child in diapers and you just on a regular basis you take your child to the bathroom and you hold them over the toilet until they get the point get like, the point. and well, and they babies don't like to be wet. And the mm-hmm. whole uh, EC theory lies in the fact that babies don't like to be wet. And so they'll hold it until you take them and hover them over the toilet. If you can do that. Well, there aren't many mothers who can stay with their child and do this every hour on the hour. You
0: need a three hundred and sixty-five nanny to do that.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. which, Ironically enough, these celebrities have. Yeah. And so a lot of this um, attachment parenting that the celebrities are espousing are not considering the mothers who have... Like, for my example, I've got a nine-day paid maternity leave. Um, nine days? Nine days uh, that I get paid for. Oh. I can take more time because of the the Family Emergency Medical Leave right. Act, but it's unpaid. <laughs> and since... <laughs> I'm the provider for my family, I can't stay out for 12 weeks of unpaid, you know, we'll be living in, you know, a van under the, down (laughs) by the river. And so, I mean, I'm going to have to go back to work as soon as possible after my baby. And I know that my husband wrangling a two-year-old. Is gonna have his hands full changing diapers, much less dangling a newborn over the toilet every hour on the hour. Right. And so, and it, so, there were probably people who were like, "She's anti-diaper. What does that even mean?" And this is this uh, elimination communication thing, which um, I've heard is very effective for many babies, but does require a huge amount of time.
0: It and there's nothing wrong with the theory that yeah, babies don't like to be wet, but. There's something to be said for the benefit of a cloth diaper over the disposables is the disposables, because of things like diaper rash, have gotten very good at absorbing and not letting the baby know they're wet. So there's an argument to be said for cloth diapers to say, well, it contains it, but it also, you know, they realize, oh, I'm surrounded by cloth. So when I go to the bathroom, I feel icky. Oh, look, when I'm one, you know, approaching two years old mm-hmm. and somewhere in that year the parents decide to start with the training process on the potty training, mm-hmm. they realize, oh, okay, if I just – if I can hold off for a little while, my parents maybe bring me to the potty every few hours. Yeah. And I can sit on my little potty training thing and I can figure that out and you can still do cloth diapers. That is – I, I don't see why the the anti-diaper crowd thinks that is a bad thing.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm not sure about the whole pseudoscience
0: Yeah, a lot of it is a matter of faith. she was
1: making. uh, But Alicia Silverstone was like, the diaper is pseudoscience. And I don't know what she was quoting there or if she even knows what the term pseudoscience means. (laughs) And so without having read her book, which I don't have any intention of doing, um, (laughs) like, I hate to be dismissive in that way. It's just especially with me being pregnant, I don't need... Yeah. To raise my blood pressure that much. <laughs> and I have a feeling with terms like turning your womb into toxic waste would probably send me over the edge. Now, there was another article and I I, I hated to kind of like, you know, overtake your entire show with like, I'm pregnant, you know. We're having um, a
0: conversation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but there was a fantastic article that you sent about obese women being less likely to breastfeed. Yes. And we talked about how breastfeeding is one of those things that, I mean, you have like this breastfeed brigade called um, La Leche League, Yeah, I've heard of it. And they can be very judgmental and people in this group can be very judgmental about women who are unable to breastfeed. And this is one of those things that, yes, you know, breastfeeding is great for your baby, but there are women who can't or women who struggle or women who really just don't want to or feel grossed out by it or what have you. And that's one of the, the things I try really hard as a mother not to do is judge people, which might sound a bit hypocritical of me when I'm like, you better vaccinate your damn kid. Yeah, But if but you want to breastfeed, that's a, okay. You there's know? a degree
0: um, of difference between breastfeeding, which does have positive things like maybe it passes mm-hmm. on some things from mother to Child, the nutrition level is natural, whatever you want to call that, or anything like that. But we've learned enough about formula that we do include basic essentials. The child is not going to die for doing formula, whereas vaccinations, polio. (laughs) Yeah. Polio could come back.
1: You're putting your child and other children at risk. And if you choose not to breastfeed your baby... One, I do think that the technology has come a very long way and that there is formula out there that is probably as nutritionally solid as breast milk or even more so if your diet is a poor one. And there are plenty of Americans who have a poor diet and if your diet is poor and you're not eating good food, healthy food – and I'm not talking don't ever eat bacon – but You know, if you're not eating healthy food, then you're not feeding your baby healthy breast milk. And for some people, formula might be best um, because it does provide some of those essential nutrients that they need. Now, um, as far as my experience with this whole obese women being less likely to breastfeed, I actually have you know, hand experience with this. And it's anecdotal to me, but I struggled to breastfeed my daughter and I am obese. Mm-hmm. And it was a challenge for me to find a way because I had a very small newborn. It was a challenge for me to find a comfortable way to hold her. And there was excess breast tissue. I have large breasts and don't mean to like, point like, yeah. Um, but I, but I have large breasts and it was, it was difficult because I did feel like, okay, I'm like smothering my child because my breast is bigger than her head. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't know how this is going to work. And I struggled a lot for all, for a well over a week to try to make it work. And, um, eventually it did, but it took a lot of patience and positioning and learning different ways you know, just like, how does this baby like <laughs> like maybe if i stand her on her head she won't die you know like i don't yeah uh, this
0: this article so, mentioned not just positioning issues which someone mm-hmm. can be trained on but they mentioned that sometimes just the fact of being obese means that all the lactation duct work whatever's mm-hmm. going on can somehow take longer to start its whole process yes. so you might that... get an obese woman who after a day of trying in the hospital figures, oh, I just can't do it. I can't lactate. So I'm going to mm-hmm. just do bottle fed and not even try after that.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I can tell you after you've had a baby, everything seems to be so much harder. <laughs> and it's just like because you've slept maybe two minutes in the last three days and I, I remember I had four different lactation consultants that came in and I fell asleep in the middle of two of them um, because I was sitting there. And I mean, this thing, we're talking about a woman who comes in and has her hands on your boob. Right. Right. And I just fell asleep. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know,
0: <laughs> some people would pay money for that. You're falling yeah. asleep.
1: And I'm falling asleep. Exactly. <laughs> so um, but then they. uh then they brought in, like, like, sometimes in Vegas, if you have people playing cards at the same table for too long, and yeah, they're I was winning wondering too how we much. got
0: from breastfeeding to <laughs> Vegas, despite, like, <laughs> no, no, okay, no, you've got no, the outfits bear, that the women wear in the, in the, the me, serving costumes, but okay. Bear
1: with me. Um, so you've got, <laughs> sometimes at a table in Vegas, if, if you have somebody who's on a streak of winning, and... The, the dealer's been dealing out hand after hand, and, and the the people at the table are winning. They'll bring in the dealer, and the dealer is always this, like, 90-pound Korean woman who <laughs> who talks really fast, and they brought in the ringer, right? Right. And this was a lactation consultant. The first thing she did was take my daughter's diaper off, go get a cold, wet rag, and, like, wipe her down to wake her up. And she's like, we just got to wake this baby up. And <laughs> then she came over and she was, she, she took the baby's head in one hand. She took my boob in the other hand. And she was like, here you go. Right. This is how it works. And like, was she thinking know, tab that a and slot B and <laughs> it was, I was like, wow. Okay. I get it.
0: <laughs> and was, was she thinking so... like, like some women might get frustrated and decide to stop trying Or maybe some babies get frustrated and kind of stop trying.
1: Well, my baby just wanted to sleep. And so did I, we both, (laughs) we were both just, just exhausted. And, you know, but yeah, she's like, well, she's not going to try, really try to suck unless she's awake awake. And so we have to wake her up first. So yeah, they brought in the, the tiny Korean woman to, to show me how it's done. And she whipped her into shape and, and, and it worked. But it was pretty hilarious because it was obvious that they had gone through every other lactation consultant they had. And, and they were just like, you know, finally, send her in. She'll work. <laughs> I don't even remember the poor lady's name. I feel bad. But like <laughs> I said, I think once we got her latched on, I fell asleep and so did she.
0: So, <laughs> I, I know some non-obese mothers who have had various troubles with breastfeeding. Oh, you don't even –
1: most people don't even know the troubles you can have with breastfeeding. You can have something called an inverted nipple. Nobody (laughs) ever tells you this is the kind of shit you need to learn about in high school because nobody told me about inverted nipples. What the hell? I never heard of such a crazy thing. But, yeah, the weird things that, you know, you should learn about in biology class, but you don't (laughs) –
0: Did um, any of these lactation consultants give you any kind of wooey, kind of pseudoscience type stuff?
1: If so, I slept through it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah. um, No, I don't remember a whole lot.
0: I'm sure you (laughs) were a good participant because even though you were having trouble, you you wanted to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So you probably didn't get the experience of the... Really, really insistent and kind of mean La Leche League kind of people who you yeah. you having trouble and you want to you just want to well let's get the baby fed at least for now and I'll try again tomorrow mm-hmm. and they look down at you like you're some you know piece of shit on their on their shoe for giving a bottle at least once.
1: Well, we had um we had a bit of an issue with one of the nurses who. Didn't uh, pay attention to our our birth plan. I was a gestational diabetic, which means that when my baby was born, the chances are her blood sugar was going to be very low very quickly, so that they were going to have to put sugar in her as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, as soon as she was born, essentially, they wanted to take her and just give her a bottle. And of course, my instructions had been that I want her with me. And they're like, "Well, you have to be in recovery for an hour." Um, because I ended up having to have an emergency C-section.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and so the bad part of an emergency C-section is they put you in recovery for an hour. You don't get to see your baby. And of course I woke up in just the worst mood ever. Like friggin', give me my baby. <laughs> we're, we're talking like, <laughs> you know, horror movie levels of, you know, give me my baby. Um, <laughs> And they're like, no, you have to stay here and your baby's fine. Well, they had immediately taken my daughter to the, the natal unit and were about to give her a bottle. And my husband stopped and said, no, we want to feed her like with a spoon or with with a syringe tip. You know, like the syringes without the needles, of right. course, like just the syringe tip so that she doesn't get attached to that nipple you know, right. and and have trouble latching on later, and the lady was uh, the nurse was very reluctant to do that for us, and that was a little frustrating.
0: They got to be used to um, doing that kind of thing with different medications or something like they're that. They are
1: all they're all bottle, 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 and they'll stick a nipple in anybody's mouth or a pacifier, yep. even. Okay. Um, and that was a little frustrating, but again, I I don't want for for people who think that my my stance on vaccines, which is every mother should do it. You are an absolute abusive, neglectful parent if you don't, to go across as this is the way it should be for all things. Everyone should cloth diaper. Everyone should extended breastfeed. Everyone should do all of these things that I'm doing. Because really, uh, so much of being a parent is doing what is best and makes you comfortable and makes your family comfortable and is what you think is right, right? Within reason. I did reason. this because, yeah. because it's what I felt was the right thing to do. And with not just within reason, but within the health and safety of your child and the health and safety of, of others.
0: Well, that's, that's kind um, of what I meant that there, there are some yeah. basic things like, um, I'm trying to think of something besides vaccination, but I don't know, actually feeding your baby on a regular basis. Or if they're in diapers, you change them more than once a day. That sort of basic stuff that if you don't do that right across the board, that is not good.
1: I think seeking basic medical care is another thing. Um, There were a number of
0: the prayer, the parents who just pray over their baby to hope Mm -hmm. it gets better.
1: Yeah. Well, there were, there were a certain number of women who were on my, on this cloth diaper board and the Crunchy Atheist board that were looking for chiropractors for newborns or Uh looking for a chiropractor because they'll give pediatric care without pushing vaccines. And just the idea of a chiropractor taking the place of a medically licensed pediatrician makes my stomach churn. And um, I I think that that might have actually been the conversation that finally got me knocked off the Crunchy Atheist board because I kind of went, you know, like Godzilla Mama on them because that was, you know, if you're not taking your child in to get regular. And then they're like, well, I'm a mother. I'll know if something's wrong with my baby. And I'm like, you don't. Unless you have medical training, how would you know how to <laughs> yeah. recognize a neuroblastoma in your child? Or right? even just you know? something more like,
0: simple of. The baby has some sniffles versus they have the flu. You have to get the, to to the hospital immediately.
1: Yeah. That that There are just so many things that, oh, mommy knows best. It just doesn't work for. Her. Mommy yeah. doesn't know best when it comes to, okay, is this rash something that I need to seek medical treatment for or is it not? Well, I would much rather – and there are plenty of pediatricians that that have – Programs now that allow you to not rush off to the hospital with your you know with your child every time they have a sniffle, but like um, my doctor uses a program called NextMed, which allows me to take photographs of my daughter, my daughter got a rash across her belly, and I was able to take a photograph of the rash and send it in to my doctor and say, "Should we come in for a visit and can we make an appointment and she replied like, "If the rash is hard." Yes, if the rash is not hard, then it's probably this. And for her to make kind of a pre-diagnosis. And with technology like that being available today, there's no reason that you should try to seek someone who is not classically trained to work with childhood illnesses in lieu of some chiropractor who doesn't have medical training.
0: Right. All Uh, All a chiropractor has learned is essentially how to crack people's backs and give vigorous massages. They haven't learned Mm -hmm. how babies develop, what happens at different stages, what illnesses may look like. They they haven't gotten any of that training.
1: And there's so much that happens in those checkups that, I mean, and I've I've been very shocked at kind of the questions that your pediatrician asks at checkups, that just tell you like, okay, can she put together this three sentence word, or if you tell her this, does she understand what it means? Does she stop when you say stop, or Mm -hmm. you know? And just kind of these seemingly conversational questions that help her diagnose. Is everything neurologically developing normally? Is she um, a risk for autism? Are her legs and joints developing properly? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I would never imagine that a chiropractor could be able to do. And so it, it, it hurt me to think that anyone is putting their child at risk by not seeking that kind of medical attention. It's, um, it's
0: scary. You, you want to see their point of view to understand that. They are coming from a place of fear and a place of not wanting to to harm their kids. And they've heard anecdotal stories that there was harm from, unfortunately, uninformed sources. Yeah. You kind of, at the same time that you want to understand that they're not necessarily stupid, just uninformed, but you just want to do the someone is wrong on the internet thing of just yell at them. It's, yeah. it's very so. difficult to be the fill plate, don't be a dick skeptic and, and try to continue a rational argument like you did with that comment forum where you Mm -hmm. kept trying to say, well, as, as much as using the words, let me explain this. So you'll understand. You were trying to actually inform her. Someone who's on that defensive is going to say, Oh, you're just thinking I'm stupid. So I'm going to dismiss everything you say. It's, it's such a fine Mm -hmm. line to walk. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm very good about it. I know last year sometime, I, a friend of mine from grade school finally found me on Facebook, and she's some basically hippie, granola, naturopathic type person up in Austin, mm-hmm. very close to where I live.
1: Oh, you With- mean like an Austinite? Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Within a like a day of being Facebook friends, there was some basic, very quick little thing about vaccinations, and she unfriended me because wow i i, I whatever I, I mean i i get comments from mother friends who really will use the argument well because you are not a mother and you are not a parent you can't have an opinion on this no. and i try to say well it's the science it's not you get a magic amount of ad- information when oh, either you me. or your your partner pushes when on a baby. You get,
1: when you get <laughs> pregnant, you get less capable of, I mean, at least this is in my anecdotal experience, don't <laughs> yell at me. But there is a term for it. And, and I'm sure anybody out here who has been pregnant or has a partner who's been pregnant has heard of pregnancy brain where you forget things and there are just – Some things end up being monumentally important, right? Like loading the dishwasher becomes the most important thing in the world to do. But I don't know, grading papers somehow (laughs) falls through the cracks, even though that's what you get paid to do. But yeah, your brain is is kind of overridden by all of these hormones that have very specific evolutionary purposes to say, this is what you have to do to prepare your body to, to make this happen. And your brain is kind of in the backseat for a while, and I think that that can lead to a lot of this not making clear decisions, yeah. and it can make pregnant women, especially, very vulnerable to to being preyed upon by people who want to sell you some sort of wackadoo, you know, book <laughs> about how to make your baby smarter and you know the baby Einstein stuff yeah. and all of the. Like and I don't know if you know about the baby Einstein stuff, but all of the
0: uh, yeah, it's basically classical kind of
1: music DVDs and how DVDs classi- with
0: like sh- shiny yeah. shapes and triangles and numbers and stuff. Yeah. yeah,
1: but it was based on a scientific study that was done on short-term IQ testing and the results of classical music on short term IQ studies the mozart and it effect was, or something like yeah, that yeah and it was done on a very small number of college students and the <laughs> effect was less than 11 minutes long and so somehow this this got converted into all of this play classical music for your baby and they'll magically become smarter and, you know, when you're a pregnant woman, you're like, well, well, of course I want my baby to be smart. Yeah. And everything else kind of goes out the window because you're like, wow, my baby can be smart if I listen to smart people music, like classical music. Yeah. And I'm like, F that. My baby listens to the Ramones, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, yeah. There's something to but, be said for talking to your baby, having your baby hear speech, yeah. not necessarily just baby talk, but speech and maybe even music. So they hear that rhythm that the complexity in those tones and all that kind of stuff, but it's not in and of itself going to make a kid automatically smarter. Yeah.
1: Well, I think when, and a big thing to consider also isn't even necessarily in the womb, but once they get here, kids pick up on things yeah. real fast and they're capable of amazing retention. And my daughter will constantly say things that I don't even know where she got it. <laughs> and, and <laughs> What's amazing is she doesn't go to preschool. She stays at home and, and my husband stays at home with her during the day and he won't even know where she got it. And we're like, wait, and the other day, and I'll share this video with you so that you can see it. She put a can on her head. And and when I say can, it's a, it's like a big tube, like a giant coffee can that we keep her Lincoln logs in. She put it on her head. She put a dog bowl on one hand and she put, uh, her, trick-or-treat thing on the other hand and she walks around the house going I am a robot I'm looking for aliens and I'm like (laughs) wait where where what (laughs) where did that come from you know like first of all how does she know how to dress up like a robot and how does she know what robots sound like what the and you just kind of walk around the house for about 30 minutes going did that really happen? You,
0: know? <laughs> you um, don't know what offhand thing you might've said or commercial exactly. or whatever. Yeah.
1: But um, there have been a number of studies done and I know that there was a study done fairly recently that we learned about in one of my professional development classes at school, which was encouraging us to say things to students like, I see that you worked very hard on this rather than um complimenting them for being very smart right? Um, because they found that in the long term students who are regularly told how smart they are will choose less challenging tasks if given an option. And so if you're offered a puzzle or, you know, that is, you know, 20 pieces over a puzzle that is a hundred pieces. The student who has been told over and over again that he is smart will always choose the the easier of the task, the 20 piece puzzle.
0: Yeah. I, I remember uh, we may even have talked about that on the show, um, yeah. about essentially along the lines of when you're told you're smart, you don't want to try anything too hard because you don't want to fail. That would make you feel, like you weren't smart and caused some cognitive dissonance going on there.
1: And I think part of that is it also ties back to that imposter syndrome of, I was told I was very smart as a kid and I always felt like, Oh God, what happens if they find out, yeah, yeah. you know, like, like <laughs> what if they find, you know, my students, I, mean, I have students who constantly think that I'm the smartest person in the world, uh, which is brilliant. Like, of right. course I am. Um, <laughs> but i tell them all the time i'm i'm a genius my mommy told me so i'm very intelligent about chemistry and biology and if my students ask me anything about it i can pretty much answer their questions but at the same time i couldn't tell you when like archduke Ferdinand was assassinated <laughs> or why you know like that's completely outside of my wheelhouse and so you know i of course i just brush it off i'm like of course i'm brilliant but then there's that part of me inside that's like wow I have them fooled. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. One more day. They think I'm smarter than they are. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Where and it's the important
0: thing with the kids is to reward the effort and show yeah. that working hard and trying is, is worth it. And that is still to be rewarded, even if you don't get it right.
1: And students who are taught that as their lesson have a tendency to try more difficult tasks because they want to be acknowledged for the effort they're putting yeah. in rather than for the accomplishment of, I got this done. And I see that particularly in my in my pre-AP and advanced GT-level courses, that the students really have been told they're smart their whole lives. And they will not choose the harder of two tasks if given. And by the time they're in high school, sometimes that's very difficult to, to kind of urge them out of especially right. in a field like science where i'm trying to get them to take risks and you know develop their own labs or develop their own thought process because they want to do it right and they're like well what is the right answer well right. it's a lab you're going to have to figure out a way to find the right answer well how will we know if it's the right answer i'm like well that's the great part of science. You have to <laughs> figure that shit out, right? Yeah.
0: I, re- um, I remember a lot of my high school, mainly chemistry, but also some of the other stuff, that my chemistry courses, you would be given a lab ex- um, something to do where you're supposed to mix these two chemicals and then calculate the different moles and create the formula of you had hydrogen chloride <laughs> on this side and you added this and it became this gas and this many moles, whatever you do all the math, it was very much, you add this, step two is you add this, and you get this, it's blue, and it's bubbling, or whatever, and that's it. There was never the why. So with either things like rote or saying, you know, you just have to get the right answer doesn't allow kids to understand how science happens, and how to understand something you may read in the news, like the various things we've read about going back to the beginning, permanently influencing a baby's DNA. Well, if you understand mm-hmm. how people learned about DNA and how DNA works, that DNA stays the same throughout your life, but the expression may change either in different cells or because of different environmental factors or something like that. You can understand how. So the, the, just the pure learning by rote is not the best way to learn science. And unfortunately That's the way we have to do it to kind of teach to the test. Yeah. and And I well, realize that we 're about like an hour fifteen into our recording, and to get yeah. you a teacher talking about teaching oh, to yeah. the test may be a very <laughs> dangerous test. sentence to uh, say but
1: absolutely, but i I do hope that you could have me back sometime, and we could talk about the skepticism or lack thereof in the education system it 's a topic that, like you said, would probably take an entire show
0: um, oh, yeah. on its own well, hell, but... i just got to get you and Donna together talking about motherhood <laughs> and parenting again i 'm I'm yeah. sure you guys would love it.
1: <laughs> well, and and one of the things that that I would like to to touch on is just that for the the students that are just that rote memorization and regurgitation form of science is not only not how science has ever worked, yeah. but it doesn't it teach teaches students how to recognize science but not to do science. Yeah. And so they can be like, oh yeah, I recognize that that's a chemical reaction. Can I describe what's happening or, or predict what's going to happen if I do it with this chemical? And no, that's not, that's not kind of how our science education has kind of been geared in the, the last couple of decades. But we are certainly moving in in, in certain schools more so than others, moving towards the, No, science is all about getting the wrong answer because the wrong answer is always way more interesting. If everything that happens in the lab is completely predictable, you're never going to discover anything new.
0: It also, that, that kind of learning may also reinforce the idea that science is only specific answers that we know and it's carved in stone. And it may lead to... No, that's history. <laughs> well, no, it, it may be things like reading a science story and saying, oh, they... we I, This is a bad example, but, uh, oh, we've changed our mind on whether or not eggs are healthy or bacon. We talked about bacon yeah. earlier. Uh, yeah. Is bacon okay for mothers? And yeah. you get someone who read a story a couple years ago about eggs are going to kill you, never eat, eat eggs. And then there's a new science thing out there that says, actually, eggs are pretty good for you. Watch the yolks or whatever. But, and then they think, well, no, science is supposed to be one answer forever and it's done. They don't understand that things can learn and things can change. And And that can be a problem with science and it can be also a problem with, this is getting way off topic, politics of not understanding that people's ideas can change and they can be, they can learn better. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obama is fairly famous recently for having saying that his views on um, gay marriage and homosexuality, LGBT rights and whatever have evolved. They have changed. He's learned he's been exposed to different people outside of his usual community, whatever that may be. If it's just like legal ivory tower circles or the African-American community. I used to live in Chicago about five blocks from the church he went to. Yeah, a lot of those guys were not fine with LGBT people. Yeah. So everything, if you can emphasize that we can learn more and we can change our ideas, may mean that either politics or in science people can learn better or someone having an argument about whether or not to breastfeed or to co-sleep or to diaper, they can realize someone might have information that can change my view. And mm-hmm. I know that's really idealistic for humanity that's been this way for a couple 10,000 years, but it's worth hoping, I guess.
1: <laughs> it's always worth hoping. And and we do what little we can. And if what little we can is to piss people off on the internet, then that's what <laughs> I – that is a task that I'm willing to take on for myself is uh, – well, and, and we all kind of affect the world in our own little ways. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a place for people who – like Phil Plate, who take the don't be a dick approach. And I think there are also places for people like Christopher Hitchens, who's like, I'll be a dick because it yeah. gets a atten- you know, because it gets people to listen.
0: I've always compared that to kind of the full frontal approach where if you just yeah. tried one approach, then you're kind of isolated onto who will listen to you, but you need mm-hmm. a American humanist society, but you also need American atheists to kind of give that full frontal push of Listen there's lots of people with lots of different views we're not a monolithic thing. Mm-hmm. Someone might listen to one of those groups. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, and I I have to censor myself a lot <laughs> in my job obviously. And one of the things that affects me a bit is when people are like, well everybody has a right to do whatever. And I'm like, well and and with the whole Don Sterling thing this last yeah. week of you know, his consequences for what the, what idiocy came spewing out of the the bastard's mouth. And it's like, yes, he has the freedom of speech. And I had um my, my father-in-law uh, posted on his Facebook. Like I can't believe the NBA is doing all this stuff to Don Sterling when he was just, you know, freedom of speech, first amendment, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, first of all, the first <laughs> amendment doesn't protect you from consequences For what
0: you say. It just means the government can't prosecute you.
1: It just means that you can't be thrown in jail for it. Now, I have to understand that if I called one of my students a self-entitled little (laughs) douchebag, I would get fired. And so would I get thrown in jail? No. Would I lose my job? Yes. Because there are certain things that I cannot say, um, despite the fact that I really want to sometimes. (laughs) And so it's very important that we, we take into consideration that just because everybody has the freedom of speech doesn't mean that they should be free from criticism of that speech. And so while you can say every parent should do whatever they want with their kids, you can expect people like me to stand up and say, mm, yes, but, <laughs> and criticize that, yeah. um, yeah, as long as you're getting them their vaccines, go right ahead. <laughs> I'm like, um, it's kind of where I am. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, on that hopeful note about free speech, I really appreciate you sharing an hour and a half of your speech with me, Jamie. I uh, really appreciate you stepping up to the plate and helping out when our two my two co-hosts were uh, otherwise detained. Um, All right.
1: Sorry, I took the whole hour and a half and you got like five <laughs> minutes, but
0: yeah. Well... <laughs> I have an unfortunate tendency, because I have a tendency to talk, of over-talking some of my co-hosts, so I don't feel bad at all about losing well, his, some of it.
1: <laughs> as I said before we started, I'm, I'm a teacher, so I'm used to having a captive audience <laughs> and being able to say whatever the hell I want, um, as long as I don't call my students douchebags. Yeah. Plus, I'm <laughs> happy
0: to have more women in podcasting, because there's too much Woo! of a sausage fest out there. Actually, we originally started with – it was just going to be three guys, but I insisted we find a woman to bring in to our group. Well, now
1: you've got another and you can call me in whenever.
0: Great. Awesome. Do you want to share like Twitter or anything like that if people want to follow you, maybe a blog?
1: Um, I am Jamie J on Twitter, but I spell my name really funky. So it's at J A M Y E J and it's kind of full of my little pony and education stuff. So, okay. and, and pictures of my daughter. So I don't <laughs> say anything worth really following, but of course, if people want to look me up on Facebook, you can find me through
0: Greg. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you for joining me this week. And I just realized We're an hour and a half into recording, and I didn't mention to the audience that uh, today is May 1st, 2014, and this was episode 160 of The Skeptic Wire. Uh, We usually say that kind of at the beginning. Oops. (laughs) But uh, thank you, Jamie Carr, for joining us this week, and thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. I have no idea what may happen with Gary and or Donna next week. Gary has been super swamped with all of his different work stuff. So he may not be in, and Donna's first priority, obviously, is her family, her family emergency. So I'm not sure what's going to happen next week, but you will get some content from us somehow, even if it's a five-minute show of, whoops, we we couldn't do anything (laughs) this week. But uh, again, thank you very much, and have a good week, folks. Say goodbye, Jamie.
1: All right. Bye, Jamie.